hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep? Well, welcome, you're in the right place. Because this is Sleep With Me, the podcast that's here to put you to sleep. And we do it. Well, tonight's Game of Drones. We're presenting Game of Drones, the Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. And we do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. We're going to do the rest. And the way it works, this podcast is going to create a safe place where you can set aside all your racing thoughts, your troubled thoughts, your strange thoughts, your judgmental thoughts, your, your racing mind. We're going to distract you from your racing mind. With a, I'm going to talk about stuff from the episode. The latest episode of Game of Thrones... Uh, the pointy end episode season one episode eight and uh yeah i almost got you almost got me there with the trick changing around i almost said uh winner die even though i know that was the week before we're going to talk about the episode and and things are going to get a little roundabout first i'm going to break down the episode then i'm going to talk about stuff but you don't really have to give me your full attention you just got to relax listen and and pay attention a little bit so that you're not thinking so much. And uh, that's what I'm here for. I just want you to know I'm here to help you fall asleep. Ideally, I'm here to try to help you fall asleep. And, uh, you know, I'm here for you in some strange virtual way because I've suffered from not being able to sleep before. And I know how, you know, sometimes it's not awful. Sometimes it's just irritating. But sometimes it's terrible. And whether it's a little bit inconvenient right now or terrible or on a 10 out of 10 on the on the health factor, it's a 10. I, mean, I, I know I don't, I don't claim to understand or, you know, exactly know how you feel. But I, I, I can relate, I guess, what I'm saying. And that's why I do this podcast and also... Uh, what else am I going to do with all this uh, stuff going on in my brain, you know? So it works out. It's a um, symbiotic type thing. And that, if that's your first time here, this is what the podcast is going to be like. So I hope it helps you fall asleep. I hope you enjoy it. If it doesn't, I hope you find something else to fall asleep. We're on the web over at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Uh Game of Drones episodes are at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com slash drones. If you need to get a hold of me or you want to get a hold of me, feel like getting a hold of me, you can email me, feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can get me on Twitter at Dearest Scooter. And I also post, try to post sleep-related articles there. Interesting stuff, always in the news about sleep. Sometimes it's just people looking to drive traffic to them. Most of the time I can... Most of the time I don't fall for that, but sometimes I do. You can get me on Facebook as well. That's where I post the bloopers. If you feel like listening to me act goofier than this, believe me, it's on there in the boop bloopers. Somebody recently told me about uh, hearing me say Tyne Daly's name, blast from the past. So that's on the bloopers. And you can also get a hold of me on Facebook. You can post on our website. Love to hear from you. We have a post office box, S-A-S-E, sleepwithmepodcast.com slash S-A-S-E. Here's how it works. Real simple. You send me a post, a piece of mail, and and inside that piece of mail, you include a self-addressed stamped envelope. I will send you back three pieces of outlines 
from the uh, podcast. I'm going to digitize them first. So don't think you can hold me hostage as someone tried to tell me they now own the pot. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, and then I'll send them to you. I got a nice stack of legal pads and some loose papers and stuff ready to go out to all you guys. And they're going out to people. So thank you, those of you that are participating. You don't have to, though. Just kind of supposed to be like strange bit of fun. I don't know. I've gotten some wonderful things in the mail. Heard for some wonderful people. If you want to participate, go for it. If not, you know, if I, I tell you what, I'm a lazy ass. And back in the day, I was even lazier. So I don't know if I, I would have got, said it would have been on my list. I wouldn't have got around to it. But, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a get around to it type of person, I'm the P.O. Box, check the SASC because usually I'm wrong. But I think it's PO, uh, Sleep With Me Podcast, P.O. Box 1751, Alameda, California, 94501. I'm about 96% sure it's P.O. Box 1751. The rest of the stuff I'm positive on. But, yeah, go ahead. Mail to the wrong P.O. Box. I mean, what is it? You know, I'll owe you 50 cents. So that's it uh, on that um, stuff. I'm trying to think. All right, let's keep moving, I think. Yeah, I don't even know. I'm gonna, I was going to pause it, but I just looked down. But what we're going to do is... Uh, I'm going to say a little thank you prayer to the old gods and the new. Run through the, we're going to run through the episode. We'll do a little table of contents, and then the rest of it you might hear, you might not hear, but there's going to be stuff between now and the end. All right, let's do it. This prayer goes out to the gods, old and new. This prayer goes out to the gods I've left behind. That creepy god... You'll find out about it in the next, I can't, I don't have the, my Michael Stipe hits those high notes, I can't do it, gods, I'm sorry, but this is your uh, humble servitude, servant for servant of servitude, coming in on the Gratitude Express, shooting up to the, well, yeah, I don't know where you get, if you, if you're, you know, like a lot of gods would picture in the sky, I don't know if you're sky gods or where, if you're up there, uh, I just haven't spent enough time with this mythology, sorry, real religious uh, no, no. But the fact, you know, gods, I'm not in Westeros all the time, clearly. So, uh, p- pardon my blaspheming if that was a blaspheme. But I'm, mean, you know, Gratitude Express is a primary uh, direction of this locomotive, locomotive, and um, you know, the whatever goes behind the locomotive that keeps it moving is the gratitude. And I'm gratituded for you, gods, but especially for. Uh, Posty Posterson, Postum, Postum, Posta, Postatopolis, Chris, over at soundslikeanearful.com that does our music, Sir Scott, and Her Highness Jennifer, who do our art, and, and my brother Ken that does the Game of Drones only feed art, and, um, well, it's the Lord and the Lady, I hope they're safe up there in the Poconos Mountains by the time this, uh, Hits the airwaves. Hopefully, they're at home with their family and pockets full of cash. Uh, we're in a safe, so don't go bothering the Lord and the Lady, you criminals. Because this will come out anyway. They probably already went to the bank by the time you're hearing this. We've been hearing from lots of wonderful new people, gods. Uh, some people that I'm not even sure I mentioned last time Daniel G., Kevin F., Cody D., Tony I., Prongs. 
a.k.a. Becca, I think. Lauren P. over at Twitter. Rose, who found out about us from Sir Scott. So thank you, Rose and Sir Scott. Dan Miller, I heard from again. He was the one that put that um, really wild review in there. That ended with uh, sob, heaving sobs of gratitude. I'm sorry, I'm probably misquoting as usual. But Dan Miller wanted me to know it wasn't a movie quote. Dan thought it up, and I just wanted to give him credit for his job well done. Hub Baker over on Twitter. That's with two U's. Brian M. on Facebook. Brian, uh, it's funny, on Facebook. Stella I. Let me know a little bit more about Doctor, the Doctor, okay? And I haven't, I haven't, I haven't had a chance. I'm thanking gods before I've talked to Brian or Stella. But uh, so, but by the time they hear this, they probably have, will probably have chatted. Weird, huh? If you're listening, uh, Brian, Stella, even anybody else. <laughs> but um, I can't tell. I got to find out. Stella made a really funny joke. I think uh, about Doctor Who. She got me. The Doctor. I mean, <laughs> uh, Patty M. Patty M. And I see here from you on Facebook, and Erica D. And her mom, and Erica's wife. Now, I'm not sure if Deb is Erica's wife or Erica's mom, but I want to say hi to all three of them. And, uh, you know, we had an intergenerational thing going there, and Erica sent me a lovely email and said to her, you know, tell me about her mom. And uh, so I want to say hi, make sure I say hi to her mom. And now, maybe, you know, Crone, I don't know how old Erica's mom is, but Crone, believe me, now that I know Erica's mom's listening. My mom listens. I don't think she makes it this far, but... uh I'll be extra crone. I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna be extra nice now, but I'm betting Erica's mom's probably not in your. No offense, crone, but I'm guessing she's younger than you, a lot younger, like thousands of years. So that's it uh, for the thank yous on the um, interaction front. And then on the, then on the iTunes end, I want to thank uh, Chevy Shove, who wrote a really nice thing. Said we thought it was gonna be bizarre, but now Chevy Shove. Can't sleep without it. Daily Computer wants us said a lovely, lovely email, and compared me to Will Chamberlain, which has never happened before. Probably won't again. So thanks, thanks, Daily Computer, and Daily Computer. Um, I have a, a cousin who's married to a Daily. So if that is by, if this is that Daily, it's even better. But I don't think it is. But Zach Thorne, right? Zach Thorne. Zach talks about. Subjects irrelevant, it's the tangents that do it for Zach Thorne. Caroline H.S. Nola, uh, or Caroline Snola, calls Radio Lab for insomniacs. Not, doesn't, says I'm not Stuart Smalley. But, uh, you know, I could be in an Airstream trailer somewhere in New Mexico. Thank you. Probably not, but yeah, I could, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind it if I had air conditioning. I, I don't know if I've been to New Mexico. That's on my list. I've become obsessed, says Tasty Large. Thank you. And uh, thanks for the, thank you, Tasty Large. And my new best friend, Carrot Bear. It was trying to do something, and Carrot Bear mentioned a C- P.S. I found that C-SPAN video clip. I'm titillated, Carrot Bear, so you got to get a hold of me and fill me in on that because it was Carrot Bear said to do something clever, and then you got me because i, I got to figure out what I'm going to try and rack in my brain right now. And if I'll tell you what, if I was going to look for a, a new best friend, Carrot Bear, um, 
would be, I mean, shit, I probably asked for a Care Bear for Christmas. A Carrots, K-A-R-R-O-T, not Care Bear. So thank you, all of you, for your iTunes reviews. Thank you for your interaction. Thank you so much. Folks, we're talking about Season 1, Episode 8 of uh, Game of Thrones. The pointy end. Now, if for some reason you're going to listen to this podcast and rewatch the episode, which you're welcome to do, uh, think about pointy end. I mean, if you and if you if you do, and you get any insight, like any new insight, I mean, there's a lot of pointy stuff in this episode. But um, you know, I'm always looking. Did I miss somebody say something about the pointy end? Because I don't remember it, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Or was there some other metaphorical pointy end? I mean, there were, but which, you know, which one are they? I, I love the, that the Game of Thrones HBO crew put so much work into the show, even in the title. So that's always something to think about. So let's run through it. We opens up, speaking of pointy ends, Wooden, Wood, Wood has points. And Arya and her dancing master are doing a little practicing. And, uh, next thing you know... There's a septa, I have a septa question mark. Oh, that's what a, then, then there's some, uh, for Arya and Ilario. Then you have a sword fight going on outside the room with uh, Sansa and the septa. And then I have a note that is illegible. It says you, some word or two words swish together, the septa. You, bread, a, thug. Bread a thug. So if you guys know what that means, bread a thug. Breathe. I don't know. Septa probably said something. Then she's like, run, Sansa. And I said, my liege. I don't know if she said that to someone. And then something probably pretty bad happened to Septa. And we go back to uh, Dancing Master and Arya. Watching is not seeing. The seeing, the true seeing is the heart. And then you got this bad guy shows up. He's threatening Arya and the dancing master. This dude, I'm not now I'm not 100% on this. I didn't look this up. I'm pretty sure that dude is Sir Marin Trout, but I'm not positive. He was very well. This is a great, it was a great contrast. Like a dancing master is wonderful. Clearly, I, you know, I think he's great. But on this round of watching it, I didn't notice how good this guy was as far as a menacing evil figurehead goes if you really just rewatch that scene it, it really felt like he was channeling Darth Vader in a good way he's about uh, 6 to 12 inches taller than the other guys a little bit bigger but not hound or mountain size you know because he's kind of playing in his full armor but he says something like uh, kill the bravosi and bring me the girl or something just in a Darth Vadery, authoritative very it was great a little taste of evil there it was so nice. Thank you. And we got Arya on the run. She gets her first kill at some point, I'm pretty sure. That was a pointy end. Uh, somebody's like, oh, yeah, I'll tell the queen. Then Sansa runs into the hound. And she's like, oh, you know, she says I'll tell the queen. That's right. And he says, who do you think sent me, girl? And we have Ned and Varys, which I wrote down uh, phonetically this time. Because I think I've, I've been messing that up. No one, thank you for not for criticizing me, everybody. Because uh, I am, I, when it comes to that stuff, I am a little bit sensitive. But Varys, Varys. Well, now I'm probably, 
V-E-R-R-I-S. Veris, right? Even though it's like spelled not. Um, we'll get into my uh, learning disabilities. We should have like some sort of uh, speech pathologist or something listen to these episodes. But uh, I know what's wrong with me, so it's not, there's no help for it. I mean, what am I? I'm off track. Sorry. And I, I'm not feeling bad about this either. These are just, that does not affect my self-esteem, this stuff, okay? Um, why doesn't no one trust the eunuch, he says. And he says, when you look at me, do you see a hero? You think I'm going to act sick my net out? What madness led you to tell the queen? Your mercy killed the king. I trust you know you're a dead man. Killing it, Varys. Varys. Then, this was interesting after last week with a lot of the action up the wall with the Night's Watch. Ned says, tell me something, Varys. Who do you serve? He says, I serve the realm, my lord. And then, boom, we shoot back to the north because the people at the wall have um, pledged their lives to defend the realm as well. And it's like, who is, you know, who is telling the truth? Is Varys telling the truth? Is the Night's, I mean, the Night's Watch... If you're going to give up getting married and having kids, you probably are taking your oath pretty seriously. Presumably these guys are, but who knows. Then you get a raven coming in from King's Landing. Guy says, bring me a horn of ale, John, and one for yourself. Horn of ale, that's a trouble. We go back. We're jumping around. Oh, he says your duty lies here now. We're jumping around a lot this episode. Back to Sanson Circe. And the king's uh, minions are there. Cersei starts playing a little good cop, bad cop. They're being mean. They're really being mean to Sansa and using her naivete, I think, and her inexperience and youth against her. Really mean. I wanted to, if I got in that room, boy, oh boy, that old maester, he'd be the first one. And then I'd probably kiss uh, Cersei and start crying um, because she'd probably look at me cross. And then I'd probably be doomed, but uh, that's what I'd do. Uh, what does he say? Uh, good catch. She says, how can I allow you to marry my son? Freaking A. If I didn't have confusing attraction feelings to you, towards you, I'd hate you. I didn't hatch anything. I think that was Sansa. Then she's like, a little dove. She, I love how she says that, though. You mustn't. You must write to Caitlin. And your brother Rob and swear your fealty. And then Sansa says, Well, what about, uh, you know, talking to my dad? She says, You disappoint me, girl. You disappoint me, child. Rob gets a letter talking treason, calling the banners. So a nice little tiny moment with Theon's face in this one where he, like, gives this nice little wry smile like he's a Mikey eating life cereal. He's like, I like this, Rob. Calling the banners. It even gives him a nice piece. He says, are you afraid? Or Rob says, I'm afraid, or whatever. He says, good. You know, that means you're not an idiot. Then you got Caitlin and her sister arguing about war and patience. And they got that little, you know, kid, some part of your heart would want to pity, but he's so pitiful, and his mom's such a monster. Then we jump again, Tyrion and Bronn in the woods. I did not find out what he was whistling, so I'd love to know if anyone knows what he was whistling. He says, if I'm going to die, it might as well be with a song in my heart. And then he says, funny, funny line. You know I love my funny lines. What do you want, Bronn? You want gold? You want women? Golden women? 
<laughs> Golden women. Who would think of that other than uh, James Bond villains? Uh, he says, I'm not your toady or your friend. Hey, like Shag a son of Dolph. Then we're back at the kitchen in the wall, uh, back at the wall in the kitchen. That jerk, uh, jerk, jerk store guy says, uh, you know, oh, trade is bastard. Then ghosts acting, acting up because there's a zombie about. Then we got the Dothraki pillaging. I, the irony is they're pillaging ships for the Khaleesi. Khaleesi claiming women. You got a call showdown. You got the witch calling, you know, after the Khal Drogo gets cut. She calls Khaleesi silver lady. She says she's going to clean the wound. Then you got Lord Umber arguing about being in the vanguard. He's like being a little jerk. His fingers get eaten by one of the wolves. He has a funny, your meat is bloody tough. Ha, 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 ha. Was just one. I don't know if he was in shock there. Then you got Rob and Bran and Rick and Bran and the old gods. You got Osha, the woman, the captive woman, telling Bran to open his ears. Then a naked Hodor, and I was like, Hodor, close. That was man, impressive actually. Back in the wall, burning bodies that were touched by White Walkers. We must burn them. Obviously, they're burning them. The White Walkers sleep below the ice for thousands. The White Walkers sleep below the ice for thousands of years. They have Caitlin and Roderick show up at Rob's joint. Talking soldiers, Rob has 18,000 men. Only hope is to defeat them in the field, according to Caitlin. Tyrion finds his dad's camp. Says the guy, it's time to meet my father. His uncle's there. I put a question mark. I didn't look up his uncle, but I was interested about that. And he says, his father's like, the rumors of your demise were unfounded. I think we covered that in another episode of, like, rumors of my demise, whatever. And then another, the boy does have a certain belligerence. You'd like him, Tyrion says to his father about Rob. And Tyrion, Tywin, is like uh, the wolf. Rushes into the lion's jaws. A little cocky. Rob's talking about crossing the river. He's, I think he's got something up his sleeve because he sends that dude back out. Uh, spares his life. Come on. Come on, Rob. I know you're up to something. Then we got Joff and Cersei forcing Sir Barristan into retirement. That wasn't very nice. He says, you're too old to protect my family or something. And after that, Cersei kind of gives a nod to some dude who introduces Sansa, who asks for mercy for her father. That jerk Meister says treason is a noxious weed. Meister price sell. Treason is treason. Oh, frick that guy. Please do me this kindness, your grace, Sansa says. And uh, Joff says your father has to confess and say that I'm the king. Now, I got to tell you, as an aside here, uh, acting here by uh, Jack Gleason, who plays, I think that's the name, Joff, was spectacular. I don't know how old this kid was in season one. That's where we're in season one, episode eight. But he, the way he was sitting, his body language, uh, I, I mean, wow. I mean, I just thought, I don't know, I thought his acting was great. 
And I just like the, I, I don't know who's, and I, I should have known who the director was. That was enabling his acting too, because it was whew, phenomenal. And the writing, obviously, of course, I'm going to be preferential to the writing of the episode. So preferential. I don't know the names of uh, who wrote this episode, but um, I'm a jerk. What can I say? So that was the episode, right? Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, keep moving. Actually, let's just... Here's what we're going to run through tonight. We're going to talk about septas, ravens and crows, good cop, bad cop. We're going to talk about uh, Sansa's necklace, just a tiny bit, and then kind of who's in charge of this type of jewelry, clothing stuff on the show. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to have a, look, a little few minutes of vocabulary just for uh, my sake because I don't, I'm not, that's not my strong suit. And for anybody taking the SAT, we're looking to, you know, save money on calendars, a word of a day calendar. We're going to, we're going to cover a couple words. Then we're going to talk about zombie fiction and George Romero. If we have time, we'll talk about Monty Python. Hopefully we'll get a drop in by Sir Pounce. And we'll have our prayers. All right, let's do this thing. It is known. First on the first on the block is septas, because we had this septa dealing with stuff. Septa, what's a septa? According to Game of Thrones wiki, septas are female clergy of the faith of seven. They are women sworn to celibacy, sometimes serving noble sometimes serving noble houses as governesses and tutors to the daughters of lords, teaching them in matters of etiquette and history and activities such as sewing. In contrast, male clergy are known as septons. Septas dress in humble clothing, the color varying, normally a subdued shade with their hair concealed. Now that woman, she was septa Mordain. This is over at uh, a wiki of ice and fire. Septa Mordain is the septa at Winterfell. She serves as tutor to the Stark girls, Sansa and Arya. Later, she accompanies to care King's Landing. She has a bony face with sharp eyes. She has a thin, lipless mouth. Really, lipless? I wouldn't say that, but low lips, maybe. According to the, this is definitely a wiki. She starched her skirts. While strict, she's a good woman who cares about Sansa and Arya. Clearly, she's a good woman. Mordain is a septa in the faith of the seven. Should t- okay, that's the same stuff. Let's look up this faith of seven over at Wiki of Ice and Fire. Because I saw some stuff. Uh, uh, this is titles and roles. Priests in the faith of the seven are known as Godsworn. Septons if male, septas if female. They're the primary servants of the seven, serving in a capacity sim- similar to priests and priestess- priestesses of other religions. The Septons and Septus follow a system of vows in serving the various orders devoted to the aspect of the seven. Septas, female clergy are called Septas. There are various orders of devotion amongst them. There are orders of Septas called white, gray, or blue Septas, but is unrevealed to which aspect of the deity each of them is devoted. There are convents of septas called mother houses, including a large one in Old Town and another in Bichester. Septas also serve as governors as we know that. A trial of a woman conducted by the faith will have septas sitting among the seven judges. 
High-ranking septas are also counted as members of the most devout, revealing they have a voice in the selection of the high septon. Orders. Silent sisters. The silent sisters are an order of women sworn to the service of the stranger who have taken vows of chastity and silence. They handle the bodies of the dead, preparing them for funerals. They are not regarded as septas. I don't know if we didn't see this. I'm just reading it. Silent sisters are sometimes served sometimes referred to as wives of the stranger. They clothe themselves in gray and keep their faces cowled. Faith militant. Two military orders, collectively known as faith militant, have existed. They date from the time before Aegon's conquest. The warrior's sons are an order of knights. The poor fellows are more hum- humbler order for commoners and women. Um... The Begging Brothers, those are uh, God-sworn who choose to wander in brown robes, typical. Typical, these brown-robed wanderers. And uh, there's the Contemplative Brothers. I don't see anything about Septus in there. So that's Septus, a little bit uh, interesting. And very brave of that one Septa to face down the guards while Sansa ran for it. Next up, uh, with the uh, ravens flying with the messaging and stuff, I wanted to read—well, it's a pet peeve of mine, ravens and crows. I don't have anything against the birds, but it just always seems like there's always somebody that knows uh, the difference between a raven and a crow, and I usually assume they're wrong, or they're spouting off some kind of facts about, oh, well, crows don't live around here. So instead of being controlled— Instead of just being controlled by my um, anger and uh, my hatred of people that know everything about crows, and and I'm not talking about bird people. I got if you're a bird person, I'm talking about know-it-alls. Uh, so I decided to look it up and and just shut up and stop complaining for once in my life. Maybe, unfortunately, I I can't retain this information, so that I'd be like, oh, yeah, and they wouldn't believe me. I'd be like, you know what? You're talking about the uh, crook's arrow crow, and that doesn't even exist. So let's look it up, the actual facts, just so we can agree upon that. If we run across each other and you're, you know, listen to the podcast, I'll probably believe you. Okay, let's start off with uh, uh, this article is from Wise Geek, and it'll be in the show notes. What's the difference between a raven and a crow? The term crow is used for an entire family of birds. Corvidae. That includes a raven species. To put it simply, all ravens are crows. So there you go, Ar- argument done right there. Well, let's keep going. But crows can also be jays, magpies, or other birds. Oh boy, I didn't even think to look up magpies. But the term crow and raven are actually very general and can be used to refer to a number of related birds within the Corvus genus. In the United States, most people use these terms to refer to the American crow and a common raven. While these blackbirds have many similarities, there are differences in their appearances, noises, and habitat. Differences in size. And this is what I always tell people. So finally I'm getting proved right, maybe. The most difference, noticeable difference between a crow and a raven is size. In most cases, the largest blackbirds in the genus are known as ravens. Geniuses. Common ravens are noticeably larger than American crows. For example, ravens average 25 inches tall, 65 centimeters, with a four-foot wingspan, about the size of a hawk, while crows are 18 inches, 46 centimeters tall, 
and wingspan's three feet, similar to a dove. Appearance. These two type of birds can also have some differences in their feathers. Both are iridescent black, beautiful, beautiful birds. Although a crow's other older feet, other feather, what? Oh, although a crow's older feathers are often lighter. A raven's feathers shine with a purple or blue tint when the sun hits them, while the American crow may look purple with green-tinted wings. Crows can fluff their feathers into a mane to show off, while a raven's individual feathers are larger and pointier, giving a throat a shaggy appearance. Crows and ravens also look different in flight. Ravens tend to soar in the air and sometimes do somersaults in flight. Wow. The wings are longer and thinner. In the primaries, the main flight feathers on the wings are also longer and have more space between them. Birds' tails also look different when spread. A crow's tail curves evenly like a seashell, while the tail of a raven meets at a triangular point. The beak of a crow might look slightly thicker than that of a raven, but the raven's bill tends to be larger in general. It also tends to curve close to the end while the beak of a crow curves down about half to two-thirds of the way along it. Now, sounds we're going to talk about in a minute. Habitat. Crows are tolerant of noisy populated areas with people and other animals, which gives them the reputation for harassing cornfields of farmers since they like scavenging seeds, fruits, and vegetables in groups. Ravens like their privacy. I guess I'm like a raven. And their solitary hunt for insects, fruit, and carrion. It's my main diet is... Uh, Insects, fruit, and carrion. So they're uh, so more like a raven than that way. What, I don't, I'm not sure what carrion is, though. So then uh, they're likely found in the remote woods, meadows, and hills, though they adapt well to many environments. I've been told that. However, and are even found in the Arctic areas, the lifespans of the two birds do vary. A raven lives 30 years, oftenly. I don't think oftenly is a word, but often while a crow only has an average life of eight years, though they live longer in captivity. Who the hell is keeping crows captive? I mean, nowadays, the crows have also been susceptible to West Nile. Oh, dear. Related birds, there are at least nine different species of ravens, called ravens, and 30 different species with the name crow, plus subspecies. So that's wise geek. Now, if you want to know about birds, you go over to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and their website, allaboutbirds.org. And I just happened to find this little ID workshop by Kevin McGowan, similar species, Rowan Craven. And uh, this will be in the show notes if you want to look it up. Crows and ravens are large blackbirds found throughout North America. Somebody told me there was no ravens in North America one time. And they can be hard to tell apart. The best clue for identification is the voice, but the species differ in some subtler ways too. This page will help you. Click on the species name to go to in-depth. We're not going to do that, but the American crow, which we've talked about, widespread across North America. It's got a moderately large bill, five broad feather fingers. Its voice is caw-caw, so that's a crow. Then you got a fish crow that's in the east and southern, southern southeastern U.S. That one goes ah or uh, uh, according to this. Then you have the uh, chin, ch, 
Chiachuan Raven or something. Now, this might have been somebody who was spouting off southwestern U.S. and Mexico. That has it's a voice, craw, craw. Um, that's a, would be in the show. It's in the Common Raven. That's my boy. Common Raven, Nevermore. Nevermore, incorrectly. They're in western North America, northeast in the mountains. Those are the places I've lived. So I've always been near ravens. So don't test me on this patience thing. Very large bill, diamond-shaped tail, four long, thin feather fingers, deep croaking voice. And just for a backup, you know, if you're going to talk on ornithology, you better double-check things with Audubon. So uh, Audubon magazine has a, a bird note, and this is a partnership between Audubon and Bird Note, a show that airs on public radio. This is from their 10-22-2012 episode, so we're coming up on a two-year anniversary. Um, and this just has a nice little, I don't see a, a um, player here, but uh talks about you're outside enjoying a sunny day when a shadow at your feet causes you to look up. A large blackbird flies overhead and lands in a nearby tree. You wonder, is that a crow or a raven? The two species, common ravens and American crows, overlap widely. Throughout North America and look quite similar. With a bit of practice, you can tell them apart. You probably know especially now that ravens are larger. Size of a red-tailed hawk, ravens often often travel in pairs while crows are seen in larger groups. Also watch the bird's tail as it flies overhead. The crow's tail feathers are basically the same length. So when the bird spreads its tail, it opens like a fan. Ravens, however, have longer middle feathers, so it's wedged or triangular-shaped as we already know. But listen closely to the bird's calls. Crows give a cawing sound, but ravens produce a lower croaking sound. We're looking back up at that tree now, can you tell? Is it an American crow or a common raven? And then you can listen. And actually, it links back to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and Burtonote.org, and this was by Michael Stein, so you know. Um, great job, birders. I'm not a birder. I have one friend um, from high school who I think he, he went to Cornell, not for birds, but, uh, I think he did, or maybe he went there in the summer for birds. Charlie's his name. He, you could literally take him somewhere or play him a bird call and he'll know it. That's pretty, that's a cool thing to have, um, to me because, and I have a boring podcast, so I, well, yeah. all right. So that's crows and ravens. If you're not asleep now, you will be soon. Next thing is a good cop, bad cop, because Cersei has uh, Sansa there with uh, Baelish and Aemon or whatever the hell his name is. I don't think it's Aemon. I think, no, that's the guy at the wall that's cool. Whoever the jerk is, Grand Maester Pycelle, that's his name. That wasn't that hard to remember. Um, They're kind of doing a little good cop, bad cop. You might be like, what's good cop, bad cop? It's a TV thing. And a police thing, an interrogation technique. But why take my word for it? There's a wonderful article over at Slate.com called Is Good Cop, Bad Cop Routine a Real Thing? It's by Aisha Aisha Harris and Sharon Shetty. And they talk about, I don't want to do any spoilers here, they talk about the buddy comedy The Heat from 
last summer or the summer before, Sandra Bullock, Melissa McCarthy, they play cops, and I guess they do a, a riff on this um, familiar routine. I haven't seen the movie yet. It's actually saved on my DVR, though. At this point, police, a police procedural or cops and robbers, cops and robbers flick feels almost incomplete without a good cop, bad cop scene. Whether it's portrayed seriously or for laughs, it's become so ingrained in popular culture that the technique in which two interrogators, one rough and aggressive and the other gen- genial and calm, attempt to will a suspect into compliance. Long ago became a metaphor applied to a multitude of situations. But do real-life law enforcers employ the tactic? Not as often as movies and TV shows might make you think. Opinions vary on just how prevalent the tactic is. Joseph Polini, a retired lieutenant commander, told us it's definitely used on occasion. The typical setup, he said, will have the intimidating bad cop first, followed by the more personable good cop, where who assures the subject that everything will be fine. Mackie Haberfield, a professor of police science at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, says it's used all the time, mainly by detectives. These two sound like good cop, bad cop, information people mainly by detectives. When a person is confronted by two individuals, one friendly and one hostile, he or she will ultimately create a much better relationship or zone of comfort with the friendly one, Haberfield explains, especially if the hostile one is truly threatening. But one veteran NYPD officer told us he finds the dichotomy antiquated and suggests it may have been more common when the cops faced less scrutiny for brutality against criminals and suspects. Some detainees respond better to anger, he said, while others may respond well to niceness. Interrogators in his both squad and his squad both try both approaches, but never in tandem. Joseph Giacalone, a retired New York police sergeant, concurred, pulling the classic version of this routine in which two people Essentially, have to put on an act while they take turns interrogating a subject can lead to mistakes and mess up the case, he said. It's always best to have one person interrogate. In his view, someone who has a built-up rapport with the subject. Many experts agree, this is in parentheses, that the most effective approach for interrogating someone is to establish respect and trust. Gia Colone, Gia Colone, Gia Colone, believes the good cop, bad cop routine is more of a teeth. TV concoction than anything else. But the earliest pop culture examples of the routine predate television. In the 1912 D.W. Griffith's short, The Burglar's Dilemma, two detectives simultaneously play hot and cold with a burglar to comic effect. And the oldest name we could find for the tactic comes not from cop shows or police manuals, but from a comic strip. Prior to any of the printed usages we dug up for good cop, bad cop, there are references to the Mutt and Jeff routine. An allusion to the bumbling main characters of a comic strip first published in 1907, Mutt and Jeff. The lanky Mutt is a scheming but foolish horse race gambler, while Jeff is a stodgy, insane, insane asylum inmate who also loves the races. Within a few decades of the comic strip's debut, their names were used to describe what we now think of as good cop, bad cop. A 1940s book on police interrogation calls it one of the oldest devices in police work in which one officer takes the role of kindly, 
stumbling fellow who was always taking the side of the suspect while the other... I wonder if um, Laurel and Hardy ever did that, or Abbott and Costello, were they ever cops? There was the Keystone cops. I don't know if they interrogated people, though. While the other played the rough, relentless interrogator. The earliest printed usage of the phrase good cop, bad cop, we found, dates to 1956. And the phrase doesn't become terribly common until the last 30 years or so, when the routine had begun taking over TV and movie screens on the heels of rogue cop blockbusters in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s that gave us a slew of police dramas and procedurals that used the trope again and again. Most notable in this regard is Homicide, in which detectives Frank Pembleton and Tim Bayless formed a brutally effective duo in The Box, the interrogation room that hosted numerous iterations of Good Cop, Bad Cop. The show was loosely adapted from the nonfiction book by David Simon, by David Simon, which describes Good Cop, Bad Cop as a bit of police melodrama that has worn thin over the years. Once the tactic became shop warm in Hollywood, portrayals began to shift. Nowadays, is rarely depicted as an effective strategy. Take the Dark Knight, where Heath Leather's Joker, Heath, where. Take the Dark Knight, where Heath Ledger's Joker mocks Batman and Commissioner Gordon's attempt at the exercise. Even more common these days is good cop, bad cop is a farce. Steve Martin electrocuting his nether regions in The Pink Panther, Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg playing a bungling interrogation and the other guys, Finn and Jake playfully attempting the routine in Adventure Time, or for that matter, a scene in The Heat. And then they say it, but I'm not going to say it because I want to see that movie. And then over at TVTropes.com, they talk about it a little bit. Uh, good cop, bad cop is a type of perp sweating known fr- frequently using crime and punishment shows. One hot cop behaves threatening and menacing towards the subject. The other tries to feel, look sympathetic, helpful, and protective. The suspect is supposed to co- cooperate with the good cop. Sometimes a genre-savvy suspect makes fun of this technique, like the Joker. Thus, an increasingly common variation known as bad cop, worse cop, which is based on a reversal. The first cop behaves menacing and threateningly. The second cop appears to be sympathetic and then usually goes crazy. He's the good cop before revealing a far harsher and more threatening attitude towards the perp. In the end, they're two sides of the same coin, even if one is the lesser evil. Two cops arguing about who to get to be the bad cop is an extension of this trope. Classic interrogation technique, but cops rarely use it. So that's good cop, bad cop. Um, and I'll put that in the show notes along with the Wikipedia article about it. All right. And then one thing I noticed on uh, around Sansa's neck from Latin, well, two episodes ago, Joffrey gave her that necklace with a pendant, and it has a golden lion on it. I had to look that up, and uh, I guess it's identical to one that Cersei wears with a golden lion. It makes sense, the uh, Lannister lion. And was, uh, it makes it more interesting that that's what Joff gave Sansa instead of a Baratheon stag necklace. But uh, it made me think of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, like who has to come up with this jewelry? And then I don't know, like I was like trying to Google it, and then it made me think of like who does the clothes on the show. So we got, and I, I found some stuff, okay? 
So let's start with the jewelry. This wonderful article is over at uh, suntimes.com, Voices. It's by Lori, Ra- Lori Rackle. The title of the article is Game of Thrones Gets Its Bling from Small Jewelry Shop in Northern Ireland. Most Game of Thrones viewers could have been too shell-shocked by something that happened in an episode. Eagle-eye fans might have noticed, like, the beauty of this item with roses and different things. Costume designer Michelle Clapton told EW that this thing, it's from another season, that's why I'm being so strange, represents the story being told um, with the different parts of the jewelry. In season one, Joffrey gave Sansa a Lannister lion pendant. It was the kind worn by his equally ferocious mother, Cersei. Like just about everything in HBO's singular series, a lot of effort is put into the jewelry and accessories worn in Game of Thrones. Items handmade in an unassuming jewelry shop along Northern Ireland's Northern Ireland along Northern Ireland's Causeway Coast, where most of the show's scenes are filmed. Goldsmiths at Steenson Jewelers have been creating jewelry for nearly four decades in the postcard village of Glenarm near Belfast. They landed the enviable client in HBO. The premium cable network relies on the Steesons to produce everything from Joffrey's crown to Daenerys's brooches and a, the brass chain of in, interlocking fingers for the hand of the king. I visited the Steeson's gallery and workshop during a fortuitously timed Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones themed press trip sponsored by the Northern Ireland Tourist Board. There's a rose on display that the shop has on display. None of the throne, Game of Thrones replicas are for sale, but there are plenty of other bright, shiny objects to buy for a pretty penny. Steeson's new touchscreen monitor describes some of the baubles the store is fashioned based on instructions from the Game of Thrones design team. One, a rose, where each petal is made of copper clay rolled by hand. The clay gets fired in a kiln that fuses the particles together to form solid copper. Brass wire makes up the vine. Real rosebuds were used to form a mold to cast the silver buds. It's fun to watch the show and see one of your pieces and think, I made that, said Rose McNally, a 19-year Steeson's employee who's crafted several pieces for Sansa, who's crafted several pieces for Sansa and Littlefinger. It's a cute shop in a cute village, conveniently located in an area full of sights for Game of Thrones. Super fans. I'll be more writing more on that topic later. In the meantime, I wanted to give you a look inside this place that makes beautiful jewelry for characters who do ugly things. Very funny. With all the stuff about the jewelry, it made me think of, like, who's in charge of this stuff over at HBO? Who's doing such a great job making sure all this comes together? And I had tr- a little bit of trouble looking it up, and I, uh, but I found a lot of articles on the Game of Thrones costume designer, Michelle Clapton. Now, a lot of them were spoiler-laden. There's a nice one, I think, in Vanity Fair and a couple other places, profiles of. But this one's on spin, and I'm going to try to weave out the, weed out, weed out the uh, spoilers that are in here. Um, so let's just go ahead and do it. It's uh, from Spin Magazine, and it's from May 6, 2013, and it's by Kieran Herbert, Herbert K-I-R-A-N-H-E-R-B-E-R-T. 
Kieran Herbert, I think. Uh, and I'll do like the usual nonsense where I kind of uh, paraphrase and quote directly and drone on. The Emmy winner discusses the thinking behind her vision, visions of Westeros. Now in the sixth week of its much-anticipated third season, HBO's Game of Thrones had made, has made fantasy cool to hordes of individuals who would rather watch the action play out in a big-budget production than read more than 5,000 pages of George R. R. Martin's best-selling series. And who can blame them? The antics were practically made for HBO, with scenes strewn with sex, violence, and many more stuff to come. The network has capitalized on the trends with the traveling Game of Thrones exposition and the surprise, surprise promise of a fourth season. Which we we saw the fourth season, right? I think you know, that was a great one. Though Martin serves as an advisor on the show, he's inevitably given up more and more creative control as the series has been progressed, taking on the sort of visual life required for good television. I don't know what that means, but a huge part of Game of Thrones' success has undoubtedly been the sets. I'd say a part, not a huge part, in my opinion, though, which jump from Northern Ireland, Malta, Croatia, Iceland, and Morocco. In the meticulously detailed costumes with rich with fur, furs, leathers, rich with furs, leather, metal, and just the right amount of sex appeal. Michelle Clapton leads the design team, who won an Emmy for their work on season two as an only has only upped the ante on season three. Clapton's work in the general popularity of Game of Thrones has been gradually seeping into the mainstream world, from Helmut Lang to Cousteau Barcelona to somebody at Nike. Clapton used to style Clapton used to style musicians for video, including Suede, Coldplay, Boy George, R.E.M., Garbage, George Michael, Annie Lennox, and the Spice Girls, among many others, before she switched gears to dressing those who sang in A Song of Ice and Fire. She answered questions for spin, ranging from how she did the job to what she did to make the world so realistic. What was the transition from your previous work to the fantasy of Game of Thrones like? Before Game of Thrones, I worked with a lot of period costumes. I always tried to put a twist on the look to reference living conditions, etc., but not to lift it directly from a visual reference of the time, as this is usually styled by the sitter or painter. Once you get to the age of photo documentation, then you can truly believe the period. How'd you prepare for Game of Thrones? Research everywhere, looking at how different people lived in different climates and times, at the availability and color of fabrics that would be available, and making techniques. I then did a series of boards representing the different areas of Westeros, so as to be careful to define them. I now do this throughout the year, storing away images that might be useful. Did you try to try to stay true to the books or collaborate with George R. R. Martin? In what ways do things need to change for television? I agree that the books allowed the reader to create images in their head, and I do the same, but I have to share them. But actually, it's more complicated than that. Sometimes there will be something I think is really important to show in a character. For instance, yeah, let's just leave it at that. Just like, we don't always agree, but then I'm only looking. I'm only looking from the costumes viewpoint. Another issue is the principal actor's hat wearing. 
Of course, they should wear them, as it is playing to me off. Okay, not just delete all that. So we work as a team, as we should. I've spoken with George, but really only on the pilot. He does not very severe. I've spoken with George, but only really on the pilot. He does not visit set very often. I'm sure it isn't what he had in mind, but then some of the description of costumes in the book would be hard to translate to the screen and would really dominate characters. It would be a different show. Is there a certain emphasis on sexy you want to keep in mind? In some cases, the sex is even toned down. I actually designed the dresses to reveal... Just skip that question. Sometimes the clothes seem to foreshadow certain things. Is that intentional? Yes, and I love to try to indicate the emotional state of characters through their costumes. Also to indicate their influence over other characters in courts. Sometimes this says so much more than words. And just as an aside, this is mine. She's just great job, Michelle Clapton. I mean, seriously, this is what, wow. And, and great job to give someone this freedom to aid in the storytelling. Have the clothes changed in season three? We'll skip that one. Is all production, is production on all the clothes done in-house? Armor and costume are 99% made in-house. And we have a wonderful range of artisans, leather workers, dyers, metal workers, cutters, printers, and embroiderers. Are some of the clothes aged or worn in for a realistic look? All the costumes are aged, be it a little sweat or full-on rags. And it is one of the most important aspects of the costume department. We have a team of approximately 10 people, including painters and textile artists, whose job it is to age the costumes appropriately. And and that kind of ends the questioning kind of abruptly of this article. But if you're more interested in Michelle Clapton, just Google her. She does a great job. And one of the, another bonus about this show, the jewelry and the costumes. So I clap for you silently because I'm, you know, I have something in my hand. Thanks, Michelle. Words. There were some wonderful words that came up in this episode and probably in the uh, season, last season, season four and, and the earlier parts of the season that I missed. But there's always like wonderful words that stick out to me and words that I'm like, I kind of know what that word means. And, but maybe I'm not 100% sure. So I decided we have a little vocabulary. Um, I wish I thought of some witty title. Vocabulary, v, 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 v you know, v, Venn diagram. But so we're going to have a little vocabulary moment. So the first word was toady, which, uh, you know, T-O-A-D-Y. I mean, I'm not sure if you can spell toad with an I-E, but uh, toady is a noun. It's a person who praises and helps powerful people in order to get their approval. And Bron was using it to tell Tyrion he's not as toady. Uh, full definition of toady. This is from MiriamWebster.com. One who flatters in the hope of giving fav- favors. Sycophant or sycophant. Examples of toady. She's real toady to the boss. No one liked the office toady who spent most of his time complimenting the boss on what a great job he was doing. Great job, not grape job. Unless your boss is a grape ape. Origin of toady by shortening and altercation. Alteration from toad eater. Man, I wish I, I could have toad eater. We're going to have um, definitely a podcast, so hopefully I'll have a toad eater 
Um, if you want to volunteer for it, go for it. Um, first known use, 1826. Related to toady synonyms. Apple polish or bootlick or brown noser. Fawner, flunky. Lick spittle. <laughs> Lick spittle. Suck up, sycophant. Uh, see synonym discussion at Parasite. Oh, rhymes with Toady. This is useful. Cody and Rody. C-O-D, like Cody, the child of um, Cassie Lee Gifford's Cody. Well, now he's an adult male. Uh, Toady, the second, is an intransitive verb. To try and get approval of someone powerful by saying and doing helpful and friendly things that are not sincere. To be a toady. Toadied. Toadying, which is spelled T-O-A-D-Y-I-N-G. Full definition of toady. To behave as a toady. Engage in sycophancy. Sycophancy. Examples of toady. He's always toadying to the boss. A satirical novel about an amoral go-getter who toadies his way to the top of the corporate ladder. How would that be satirical, though? Um, circa 19, 1859, synonyms we covered. That's it for toady. The next wonderful word is belligerent, which uh, Tyrion uses with Tywin in reference to Rob. And w- 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 this is a good one. Cause I, you know, I'm like, I kind of know what belligerent means. But let's really, ma- let's learn. Belligerent, angry and aggressive, adjective, angry and aggressive, feeling or showing readiness to fight, fighting in a war, engaged in a war. Full definition of belligerent, waging war, specifically belonging to or recognized as a state of war and protected by and subject to the laws of war. This is again uh, from Merriam-Webster. Inclined or exhibiting assertiveness, hostility or combativeness. And there's belligerent, the noun, and belligerently, the adverb. Examples of belligerent. He was drunk and belligerent. The coach became quite belligerent and spit at an umpire. I don't think this is... took very little alcohol to make him belligerent. He was even more thuggish. Okay. It's talking about Christopher Hitchens, or it's a, pulled from a Christopher Hitchens book review. Um... Origin, origin of belligerent, modification of Latin, belligerant, belligerans, isosis, isorum isosis. It's a little Latin something, I don't even remember, but a uh, present participle of belligerare, belligerare, to wage war, from belligere, belliger, waging war, from bellum, um e om. And gere to wage. First known use 1577. Synonyms aggressive, agnostic, argumentative, assaultive, bellicose. I never know um, if that's how to say that word. Brawly, chippy, combative, confrontational, contentious, discordant, disputatious, feisty, gladiatorial, militant, pugnacious, quarrelsome, scrappy, truculent. Warlike on the war laugh, on the war laugh, on the war path. Antonyms, not a great, you know, the opposite. We know what that means. Synonym discussion, we don't need that. Other government and political politi- politics terms agent provocateur, agiprop, 
autarky, cabal, egalitarianism, feudalism, hegemony, hegemony, plenia, plotia. Better skip all that. That's uh, no good. Okay, one more. Spoken by a man I love to hate. Uh, Maester, whatever, jerk face. I forgot his. I always forget his name because he repulses me so. And he's that guy is a toady. He's a Lannister toady. He's a Lannister bootlick and spittlebutt or whatever we've said earlier. But the next word he said was noxious, which is an adjective means harmful to living things. And he talks about treason being noxious, which is a beautiful phrase. I mean, it just sounded beautiful, even though it's coming out of his... I bet you that guy's got bad breath. I guarantee it. Um, He's very phlegmy, and he's just... I, get, I bet she doesn't... Yeah, whatever. I don't need it, man. He's, he's, he's made his bed with the Lannisters, so good luck, buddy. Uh, full definition of noxious. A physically harmful or destructive to living beings. Noxious, noxious waste. Contributing, and this might be where he was using it, contributing a harmful influence on mind or behavior, especially morally corrupting, noxious doctrines of traitorism. I just, they just had, this is Merriam-Webster. Uh, second definition, disagreeable, obnoxious. So he's also noxious, that jerk. Noxiously would be the adverb. Noxiousness would be a noun. Examples of noxious. Mixing bleach and ammonia can, call no- can cause noxious fumes that can harm you. Orig- origin of noxious. Middle English, noxus, from Latin, noxa. Harm, akin to the Latin nocere, to harm, neck, necks, violent death, Greek, necros, dead body, first known use, 15th century. Synonyms, insalubrious, whew, boy, noisome, N-O-I-S-O-M-E, noisome, unhealthy, sickly, unhealthful, unwholesome. They have rhymes with noxious? No. Oh, there's also an adjective noxious. This is a, that was an adjective. Oh, medical definition: physically harmful or destructive to living beings. That's it for our uh, vocabulary. Venn diagram session without the Venn diagrams. Thank you. So when when we're at Rob's tent, uh. There's uh, Lord Umber, and he's, you know, making a, he's being a kind of uh, petulant to Rob or uh, whatever it is. He's not being a toady. He's questioning Rob's leadership. And, you know, him and Rob get into it, and then the uh, wolf goes and bites this guy's fingers off. And then he's, Rob's like, you know, they're, they're about to fight, and someone's like, well, then we have to kill you because you can't threaten the king or the our lord. And Rob says, oh, no, he wasn't, he pulled his sword out maybe. And Rob's like, oh, no, he's going to cut, cut my meat. And then Umber's like, his hand is bleeding. His fingers were cut off. This is a TV show, by the way, so no no need to give him nervous or freaked out. And uh, he finds it hilarious. He's like, and your meat was so friggin' tough. Now, the actor that portrayed Umber and the scene, even though it was uh, dramatically tense, it was also, if you were to watch it out of context, it could have been straight out of a Monty Python skit. It was hilarious. 
Umber looks hilarious. He, he, uh, if, and, uh, the fact that he, I was like, is this guy in shock? It, t- it took me a couple of days. And then I was like, what are you saying? This is like a Monty Python thing. This guy even looked like, he just looked like he should be in a Monty Python. He looked like a Monty Python type guy. Um, so I was like, let me look up this Monty Python stuff. Now, would you friggin' believe it? I didn't even type in Game of Thrones. Now, maybe Google's watching me paying attention to my searches and stuff, but I searched for Monty Python and the like third article or fourth article in there was something about Weiss and Benioff and Game of Thrones and Monty Python. So, and that's a long interview article, so we're going to talk about that. There's a really great article in The Atlantic called The uh, Beatles of Comedy about Monty Python, but first you might be saying, what's Monty Python? And for that, we'll turn to our buddy over at Wikipedia, Julian Assange and the rest of the Wikipedia staff, the people of the world, I guess, that would be the Wikipedia staff. Monty Python. Monty Python, sometimes known as the Pythons, was a British surreal comedy group that created Monty Python's Flying Circus, a British television comedy sketch show that first aired on the BBC on October 5th, 1969. Forty-five episodes were made over four series. The Python phenomenon developed from the te- developed from the television series into something larger in scope and impact, spawning tour touring, spawning touring stage shows, films, numerous albums, books, a stage musical, as well, which Tim Curry was in. Uh, believe it or not, the Small World, as well as launching members to individual stardom. The bo- uh, the group's influence has been compared to the Beatles' influence. On music, the television series broadcast by the BBC from '69 to '74 was conceived, written, and performed by members Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. Loosely structured as a sketch show, but with an innovative, innovative, but with a but with an innovative stream of consciousness approach, aided by Gilliam's animation, it pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable in style and content. A self-contained comedy team responsible for both writing and performing their work, the Pythons had creative control which allowed them to experiment with the form and content, discarding rules of television comedy. Their influence on British comedy has been apparent for years. While in North America it has colored the work of cult performers from the early editions of Saturday Night Live through more recent absurdist trends in television comedy, Python-esque has entered the English lexicon as well. And there's a lot more that that'll be in the show notes from the Wikipedia article, but let's uh, hmm. let's let's wade into this article. It's uh, from the Atlanta, uh, it's from Vanity Fair, and it says it's by Vanity Fair, April issue. I don't see an author's name. It's from the April issue of uh, 2014, March 24th. I don't see an author's name, uh, which is too bad. But it says. It's a long article, so we're just going to try to hit the highlights. And I think it's going to give you a lot more insight into Benioff and Weiss. The surprising connection between Game of Thrones and Monty Python. David Benioff and Dan D.B. Weiss know what you think about fantasy. They thought it themselves before given the reins of Game of Thrones, the massive fantasy series on HBO. When you see a hulking castle and some dudes in armor, you always automatically think of the French taunter and the knights who say knee. 
Weiss is right there with you. You're very aware of the fact that at any given moment in the show, you're probably more, no more than 15 degrees away from Monty Python, he told Jim Windolf in an extensive interview. So this is Jim Windolf writing this article. And it's so tempting, or conducting this interview, and it's so tempting sometimes because it's another formidable, form, and it's so tempting sometimes because it's another formative influence for me. And it'll be really funny to steer it into my th Monty Python. Benioff chimes in. To the point where we shot the pilot in the castle where, the, where they shot Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the work of the great British pranksters is far from the only reference covered in this long, wide-ranging interview. And they talk about a lot of different stuff. And there's interesting stuff. This first thing is I had no idea. Tom McCarthy, who made The Station Agent, was the original director of the pilot, which never aired. Is that right? Benioff. There are a couple of scenes from it, but most of it was reshot. Weiss. The whole pilot was such a tremendous Mount Everest steep learning curve for everybody involved. Our whole thing when we pitched it to HBO was no one's ever done anything like this before. That's exciting, but on the flip side, no one's ever done anything like this before. And we had to find what it really was in the process of making it. Benioff, we made very basic fundamental mistakes in the script for the pilot. About 50 feet away from here, actually, we had a few of our writer friends come over to watch, to screen the pilot, and to get notes from them. And I remember watching them as they watched, and it was a really horrible feeling because by that point, we'd already put a few years into this. And watching them and knowing they did not like it at all was a horrible feeling. That last scene in the pilot where Jamie and Cersei, brother and sister, are making love. They didn't know that they were brother and sister, which was completely our fault. All right, now we'll get into a little bit about it. Where did you grow up and how did you meet each other? Weiss. I grew up mostly in the suburbs of Chicago and met David in graduate school. I had come to L.A. for a little bit, and then I decided that school was a safer place to be. So I went to Trinity College in Dublin to study Anglo liter. Uh, so I went to Trinity College in Dublin to study Anglo-Irish literature, and that's where I met this guy. You study the same stuff. Dan wrote his David Benioff. Dan wrote his thesis on Joyce on Finnegan's Wake, and I was writing on Beckett. Weiss. We were two American Jews in Dublin with no Irish roots of any kind, obsessed with Irish literature. And trying to find a functional gym in Dublin in 1995, which is not something that most Irish people in 95 were all that preoccupied with. And we'll cut a, we cut a little head. How did you guys wind up back together in L.A.? Weiss, after Trinity, I went back to school in Iowa to get an MFA in creative writing. David went to Irvine to do the same thing, and we stayed in touch and both ended up here. Benioff, living in Orange County, wasn't really working, so I moved up here, back to Weiss. We both ended up in Santa Monica around 1998. I was reading scripts, doing coverage for CAA, reading hundreds and hundreds of scripts across the board. From blind submissions to Brokeback Mountain, it was not always a pleasant task, but something in hindsight I'm glad I did. Reading lots and lots of people doing things wrong can be brutal, but also really helpful in keying you into realizing, oh, this thing I'm doing now reminds me of that thing that made me grind my teeth when I was reading someone else's name on it. Did you grow up in New York? Benioff, I did. Started out in Peter Cooper, moved up to 86th Street. I lived there most of the time. And then we moved down near the UN when I was 16. Manhattan my whole life. Near the UN, UN I'm pretty sure, is where uh, Vonnegut lived, one of my heroes. And that has a Turtle Bay, I think it's called. Just a you know, 
interrupt the uh, brilliant writers. What did you teach in Brooklyn, Benioff? Or where did you teach in Brooklyn, Benioff? A school called Poly Prep in Bay Ridge. This guy says he taught at Friends Seminary for a year, the one in Manhattan. Benioff, that's where my wife, Benioff's married to Amanda Pete, went. She went there for 12 years. When you two met each other, did you head it off as friends, or was it more like a lighting, writing partnership from the beginning? Uh, Game of Thrones, with the exception of this horror movie we did, I'm paraphrasing. Game of Thrones, this is Weiss, is the first thing we've ever written together. Benioff, headmaster almost torpedoed the whole thing. That's a horror movie. I mean, it was fun, but the result wasn't pleasing to anybody. Did you get along as collaborators? Benioff, yeah. Weiss, going into this job, once we got the green light for the show, everybody said, you don't know what this is going to be. You don't know what you're in for. It's more work than you ever imagined. It's one thing to hear it, and then it's another experience. And then to experience it is something else. I don't know how people do this job collaboratively if they don't really get along. You're spending all day, every day, for months and years on end with somebody. Benioff, we've definitely heard stories about shows where the people running it do not get along, and it just sounds like it gets transmitted down to the set. Here's another quote from, here's a nice quote from Benioff and Weiss. Benioff, the only thing we knew about TV, because neither of us had done anything in TV before, was the line that kept, that you kept quoting from David Mamet. What was it? Weiss. He said, making movies is like running a marathon. Making TV is like running until you die. Benioff, it's kind of like parenthood. People tell you, you know, it's going to change your life and you're not prepared for it. You don't really realize what it entails until you get into it. I'm sure there are classes in it, but there's no way to know what the job actually means until you're there. Weiss, unless the class involves sleep deprivation. Like if the teacher comes into your house, what it, like, like if the teacher comes into your house at night and wakes you up with a foghorn after three hours of sleep. Benny often flies you to Northern Ireland. All right, so this is a really uh, great interview. There's tons more. It's a really great interview. They talk about Breaking Bad. There's a ton more stuff. Oh, Weiss talks about it. I just saw here. Went through a big Kurt Vonnegut phase. But the writers that made me decide at an early age that this is probably something I wanted to do were Stephen King and Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams, man. Me, me and my Weiss should hang. Vonnegut, Adams. Well, the only person he didn't mention is Thurber in there of my uh, big dogs. I love Stephen King, too. The Stand was a huge book when you first read it. Weiss, that was a mind-blowing thing. My father read all the Stephen King books, and I would sit there and look at the covers. And I remember being both entranced and horrified when I was like five or six years old by the cover of Carrie. At one point, I made him tear the cover off the book because I didn't want it in the house, but then he tried to throw it away, and I wouldn't let him throw it away. Benioff, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with fantasy writing. So obviously J.R.R. So Tolkien, but also Fritz Lieber. I went through a phase where I read through every single Farud and Gray Mauser book and Lloyd Alexander and Ursula Le Guin, or again, G-U-I-N. Lloyd Alexander, I read it as a child. Ursula, uh, those, uh, what was those books called? I, had, I just read those maybe like six years, four years ago. Anyway. Then there was a very abrupt drop-off around 13 or 14. I just stopped reading stuff pretty much, and I had puberty. Then I went through this long, pretentious literary phase where I was only reading writers I thought made me seem impressive if somebody saw me reading them on the Crosstown bus. So let's just stop there.
Unless I see anything. So like I said, there's way more about Weiss and Benioff in here. I haven't even read the whole article. Um, and then there's an article from The Atlantic about, uh, there's an article, the article from the, in The Atlantic about Monty Python. So I'll put that in the show notes. And maybe we'll get to it in another episode. There'll be more Monty Python type stuff or maybe not. Maybe just go to show notes and read it or Google Monty Python and Weiss and Benioff or Monty Python and the Beatles and find out more for yourself if it interests you. Or hopefully you're asleep. But that's uh, that's it for right now on the, the, that subject. Thank you. Hello, hello. This is Tommen, your friend Tommen here. I'm here to tell you another, well, continuing tale of Brave Sir Pounce. Now, in case you don't know, I'm Tommen, uh, brother of Marcet, my son. My sister's, uh, my brother's the uh, jerk and who's currently king. King Joffrey. So, if you, you might have been listening last week and thinking, I couldn't feel worse for poor, piteous Tommen. Poor, sad Tommen. Now I do. And you should, kind of. But I have the best friend a boy could have. The best friend a human could have. And the best friend that Joff will never have. And that's Brave Sir Pounce, my best friend. The best friend to him is me. Tommen, if you ask Sir Pounce, who's your best friend? They'll say, Tommen's my best friend. He's the one man in the world who knows all my favorite scratching parts that can make me purr and whose voice calms me and whose presence I enjoy being. Even if you learn my secret petting spots, I would still be best friends with Tommen because I am brave Sir Pounce and Tommen is my loyal best friend, Tommen. So yeah, I'm here to tell you. Now we were just starting out, Sir Pounce, in the quest away, he had dealt with this pirate, Roberts, who was a braggart. And Sir Pounce said he's going to pluck a whisker from a cat in all of the eight kingdoms of Westeros. And the pirate said, you never will. And Sir Pounce said, you'll buy me the greatest ship ever cat has ever sailed in. And to note, Sir Pounce wants me to, to note that Sir Pounce is not afraid of the sea, but if he, ha- if he has a... Uh, uh, automatic physical reaction to the sea and so the greatest ship a cat has ever sailed in would have to make the cat unaware he's in the sea and that makes sir pounce laugh he's laughing as i talk because he said that is a task that we will see is not as easy as it sounds and that pirates should just keep their friggin mouths shut what is oh don't say that just pirates should keep their mouths shut and i'm glad that people liked my uh Sir Pounce imitation, and some people said it was a little creepy, but uh, I may or may not do it again. But Sir Pounce, he was there in the whatever aisles or wherever he was, and he said, Roberts, I will return here in some time hence, and I don't want you dying of the gout or liver disease or venereal disease. What's that, Sir Pounce? What's venereal disease? Keep going. Okay, I'm going keep going. He says, or oh, whatever. I will be back, and you better be here, or I will find you, because I'm, I'm brave Sir Pounce. And so, Sir Pounce set off on his quest for whiskers from a different cat. And Sir Pounce, I, I still don't understand the whiskering thing, what it stands for, but he, Sir Pounce set off. And the first place he set off was a little place called the Vale. The Vale. Vale. And so Pounce said, that's tucked away 
and you go down this this narrow road, and Sepon said, you know, there's men trying to block you, but they sleep at night, and they are frightened when they hear nothing, but they feel a cat passing by, and I like to touch their eye with my tail and freak them out. And so Sopranos did that for a while, and he would do it, and they would hit each other because they would say, stop doing that. And Sopranos said that was such fun. So then Sopranos wandered into the, the Greater Vale area. Uh, you know, I don't know what they call it, but there's a castle there up high in the sky. And Sopranos climbed and climbed and climbed and rolled and laughed and played in the grass and smelled it and used the potty and licked puddles and jumped on people that were going up to carry things that had an elevator and Sir Pounce would jump in and eat something and jump, jump back out. That was his brave Sir Pounce. And he's a trickster, that Sir Pounce. Oh, yes, he is. But when he had a look around, there was a man there speaking with his staff saying he was going away to work with the king. Now, this was many years ago. The king happened to be my father, who is gone now. And, uh, you know, you might be wondering how Tommen feels about having his father gone forever from the world. Yeah, I don't, I just wonder, you know, is Joff my father now that he's king? Because that is with mother and Uncle Jamie and father. I don't think I could be more confused, Sir Pounce. Just keep telling the story. And push the feelings down. Okay. I'm going to push those feelings away and tell you a story, because that's what I'm I'm doing. If I told you a story about my feelings, it would be about a green spotted creature that stares at me in with a, a look like a mean scepter and says, Gross, 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 Sir Tom, and your feelings are so gross, and you are a strange boy who should feel like he has strange spots. Okay, I'm going to go keep going, Sir Pounce. Yes. So where was I? Okay, so this man, air, Airman, Airman, was, uh, and he was nice to me. John Airman. He was so nice to me when he was here. And he said, I'm sorry, your father has had too much wine, Tom. And what, what could I do for? It was like he was a, he attempted to be a father to my father and... A little bit to me, but Mother said, stay away from that man. His time messing about in my business is soon to end. Um, but so he was speaking to his staff, and he was very kind. So Pounce liked him very much. And he said, I'll be off. And then he took off. So Sir Pounce said, oh, okay, he's off to help the king, I guess. And Sir Pounce had a book around, and uh, he sensed something strange as the the airman rolled off. And then Sir Pounce said, I'll stay around here and just take things in from a, a hiding spot. And then he watched as the uh, woman there, some woman in charge, she was yelling and screaming about dusting and cleaning and why do you clean like that? Out the moon door and the person went through the floor and her son was like, out the moon door with all of you. And then uh, Sir Pounce noticed she was feeding her son milk, even though, as Sir Pounce said, he's like, this was worse than your, this mother was worse than your mother, many times worse, Tom, and I'm so glad this boy 
He is so about time, and you have so much to be grateful for that you are not this boy with this mother. So it's just in when you're crying. I know you won't be able to remember that, Tommen, but there are worse children off than you. Many, many. I've heard of children that, you know, live inside trees, too. But so, uh, Sir Pounce was watching, and she was feeding, and there was milk dripping on the ground, I guess because the boy was saying, making sound, I don't know. Sir Pounce said it was disgusting. Disgusting. Uh, to me, I find what find it I want I said, more, tell me more about this milking. And Sir Pounce said, no, Tommen, those are the feelings you must, uh, I don't know, even know what to do with them till I go to the school. For dealing with Tommen's problems, I'll need four degrees. Oh, but Sir Pounce cannot help me. I, sometimes I fear that. Oh, you can get in my lap. Thank you, Sir Pounce. Oh, Sir Pounce. Oh, thank you. Sir Pounce rubbed his chin on my arm. Thank you. All, all is well now. And so Sir Pounce saw another cat, a lady cat, go and try to lick some of the milk up. And the boy said, I, I hate that cat is stealing my milk. That's my milk. I want it back. And the mother said to the gods, catch the cat. And then the cat scurried up the things, and the gods were chasing them, bumping into each other. And Sir Pounce said, oh, dear, this is not right. And he uh, pushed over some candles and started a fire to distract them. He started another tapestry on fire, and they went, and the cat was gone. And so Pounce, of course, found her later on, and he said, uh, what, if, what is this? She was hiding in the cell overlooking the outside, and so Pounce said, what a beautiful lady you are. You have to live in this indoor-outdoor situation, and that horrible woman. And she said, oh, she is terrible. The problem is she has wonderful milk. She has the best milk I've ever tasted, and this is not the only human milk I've had. And I can't, you know, I know, but uh, I know I'm risking my life, but this is, what's your name? And he said, I'm Sir Pounce, pleased to meet you. And she said, I'm Lady, Lady, I'm Lady Lutia, nice to meet you. And Sir Pounce said, uh, yeah, so she's got some good milk, huh? And she said, oh, delicious. And Sir Pounce, I'd like to, you know, look, uh, you got a look in your eye. And she said, I do. And if I had some more milk, I'd have a look in both my eyes and the rest of me. And Sir Pounce said, done. Follow me, my lady. And Sir Pounce went down. He had to think of a plan to get some milk. And so what he did was he uh, he uh, hid. What the first thing Sir Pounce did was he went down and found where the boy ate things other than milk. And he put some stuff in the boy's milk. And Sir Pounce said, I can't tell you because I can't trust you to Put it, not put it in your sister or your brother's food. And don't ever put anything in your brother's sister's food or you'll be in some prison. Uh, but Sir Pounce said, don't worry about how I did it, but I put some magic stuff in there. And it hurt the boy's throat so he couldn't drink the milk. Uh, he couldn't drink anything for a few days. But his mother, she was still making the milk. And then the boy went and he really needed the milk when he finally, his throat was a little bit better. And, there was, and then Sir Pounce jumped behind a tapestry and scared the boy off and the lady cat hit uh, something on the woman's head and the milk spilled everywhere or something, I don't know. And the two drank all this milk. And Sir Pounce said, we were so full of milk and the warmth 
and the heady smell of this milk, Tom, and it was wonderful. And I said, I'd like to have some of that milk. That's all I can think about. He said, no, Tom, the milk is not a, it's a story made up story. And he said, Tom, and I plucked a whisker, and I plucked another whisker, and I plucked a lot of whiskers, oh boy. And that was it for the veil, Tom, and, and that was it for tonight. I'm, it's like I'm full of that wonderful milk, awful person. Wonderful milk, Tom, is strange. Uh, and don't don't think about it, Tom. It's just a, oh, boy, I should have never told you this story. That's what Sabout said. And you probably shouldn't have, because all I can think about is, oh, no, I know I should push these things down, these pictures in my mind. Well, I, I should just pet Sir Pounce and try to clear. Sir Pounce is clawing at his head like he's trying to clear his mind, too. But thank you for listening. This is Tommen and his best friend, Sir Pounce, and the greatest cat in the world. And we will deal with this Joff situation, and we'll be back soon with another story. Thank you. Tommen and Pounce, out. Hey, guys, it's me, Prairnan, your uh, humble servant here on Westeros. And, uh, you know, Prairnan, Crone, sweet Crone, Miller, God of the Flowers and uh, added sugars and whatever, waters and eggs and batters and grind, you know, stuff. Thank you, uh, Smith. Oh, Smith melted stuff, melted metals and casting and hammering and ironing and stuff. Jester, God goofing around and making people look silly. And of course, Barky, the oldest God, but not the, uh, not the moldiest God. No doubt about it. You know, uh, you're, you're a God that's, you know, you got rings, you run rings around the other gods, pardon the pun. You know, like rings, you got Barky, you got rings. Oh, you might not know this, Barky, actually. Like, if someone cuts you down, God forbid, or Barky forbid, I guess, um, you know, they can count the rings in you to see how many years there are. And that might not even be true. I'm not a scientist. I'm not even, I, I barely, I've gotten arrested in an Arboretum before. Not charged, but uh, uh, and I was under, you know, I wasn't 18, so so there, Barky, it's not it. But anyway, I didn't cut any trees down there, and I wouldn't. I mean, well, it was circumstance. But anyway, Barky, um, I don't know if you knew that. Um, it turns out those Groot, those dancing Groots, I was thinking about buying you one, Barky, but uh, I should have pre-ordered it when I saw it two months ago. I didn't. That thing sold out for Christmas. Those are going to be going on eBay for a fortune probably. So sorry about that, Barky. Um, I don't know if you what holiday you practice anyway, so you won't miss it. And I don't know if you got those DVDs, but, you know, because if not, uh, the second round of DVDs I borrowed from the library, so I need them back. And uh, because of, not because of the fines, I'll pay the fines. It's just not fair to the other users. Um, and then, you know, um, so, you know, either put some money in a tree or either put some money in a tree or, um, you know, when you're done with the DVDs, uh, you know, the, the, well, anyway, I don't want to pressure you, Barky. So I got some good news, bad news. Uh, you probably, I mean, it's always funny telling you guys the news cause you're, uh, you know, depending on how you see things, making the news happen or watching it as it unfolds or knowing about it. Crone, yeah, you're supposed to let me know about this stuff. So good news, that alderman's taken care of. We can get into the details, but uh, 
that's all done. Um, bad news. Oh, uh, little side effect of the aldermen and the rising, uh, apparent rising of the dead of these people and invade, um, a little religious schism going on. And hopefully, uh, that's too, hopefully it won't spread any further through Westeros. But someone, there's a, some things I said were misinterpreted and like some sort of, uh, um, I wish I paid more attention when they're talking about Martin Luther and Pharisees and the Sanhedrins because I mess. I think I mess. I think I started a religious, uh, possibly war. Um, hopefully not. And, um, Good news, Miller, Jester, you guys are now officially gods, at least with this uh, new group. Uh, they call themselves the Severed Souls. Um, well, we, we could talk about that, but we better not talk about it right now because hopefully it'll just go away. That's what I've been, that's why I've been just lying low the past couple of days, waiting to pray to you, hoping this thing would all resolve itself. Of course it didn't, gods. You know, I, I know I should just be honest with you, but I don't want to call early. You know, I call you once a week. But so, yeah, we'll see about that. We'll, we'll, I'll deal with that. But I want to, you know, let me get some glory in for you before we have to deal with the... the um, I'm not sure if the bodies are going to rise up or not. This, um, And the, these people, they kind of interpret stuff. So it's like they're always proven the religion I think I might have accidentally started uh, um, but then people the thing was I got mad because someone said the mold gods in the new Barky that's why I made that pun and I punched that guy in the face Barky I missed and I hit him in his ear so I guess I didn't punch him in his face but I, I wanted to and it hurt because uh, yeah, um, so he was real mad I ended up he was a uh, some sort of big sept, septin type guy for, uh, uh, I don't know, but he shouldn't have said mold guts in the new. And then someone said he has speech uh, impediment, and he didn't say mold gods, but I don't believe that. And neither do you gods. You know better. So anyway, with Alderman thing, um, last week I had to go prove to this jerk that I knew the witches. Uh, that I made up. What an idiot. He wants me to prove that. And then, you know, the witches are going to boil him up or whatever. I can't remember. I told you. I told him last week. But I figured I'd, like, stoke a lot of resentment. And um, I don't know, guys. Like I said, this doing stuff for you guys has really uh, turned a corner for me, being an awful person. Um, and, you know, this, even if I started a war, it was for you guys, not me, right? So my self-esteem is not taking a blow. Well, a little bit. But maybe in a good way, because I just don't want to see people, you know, get killed over a, a war I started uh, for you by accident. Anyway, gods, uh, my thing aside, so what I did was I, the whole alderman thing was I decided this guy can't be that popular. He's ruling because he's in charge or uh, I couldn't figure it out. Um, I mean, later I'd figure it out. But so I said, you know, the, you know, the people are keep getting their stuff stolen because of this alderman. And pretty soon the witches are going to be coming into town because I'm way more sociable now that I'm working for you guys and not worried about boots or women. or Well, I mean, I was doing the brothel inspections, 
but that's a hobby. Okay. And, um, anyway, I, I got banned from, because they said you're no brothel inspector or you have no, actually he said you have no business inspecting a brothel wherever you're from. This was some brothel jerk. And so I said, the witch is going to get you too. So I started, um, just coming up with different ways. I'd take the, some of the people from, um, what do we call it, shut-in town or shut-in city, whatever I was calling it, and I'd bring them and, like, I'd bury them in leaves and they would rise up. And and every once in a while, like, first I started doing that and then they'd just wander away, which which pretty good for some of them, like, that are uh, have issues going on. But we're still taking care of making sure they're hydrated. We have a, We have a system of respectful uh, elder use, not elder abuse, crone. Okay. It's different. And uh, cause it's for you guys, clearly. I mean, uh, crone, I don't know if I could, abru- I know that would be a test if you were like, I want you to abuse those elders. I'd be like, crone, come on. You can't, you can't trick me. You don't want me to abuse your people. Uh, elder use. So first it was just like, kind of like that. And then people were, you know, you let the rumors spread like wildfire but uh, what happened was, this is where the trouble started, is uh, people started watching me and they would see me where the old people rised up and they'd see me touch them or whispering to them, but they weren't close enough to hear. <clears throat> they weren't close enough to hear, so you'd think that they would think that uh, I was whispering to them and I should have been doing it more on the down low, but they thought I was doing some sort of uh, like... Uh, uh, religious uh, praying and uh, you know I would I don't know if you guys have been paying attention but I like to brag on you when I'm in the pubs or inns or even the brothels like the girl will be like wow that was uh, that was uh, uh, you know uh, that was the easiest the easiest client I ever had other than the guy that wouldn't stop crying Not I'm not the guy that wouldn't stop crying I'm just like whatever I said, well, let's see, you can thank the uh, old gods and the new, but particularly, you know, uh, I mean, you know, mil- you know, whatever, you know, Jester likes me every once in a while, I'll be funny, you know, how it is. So that was a funny lovemaking session. And she's like, oh, that's what you call me. She just laughed. So that was a Jester done. So I've been bragging on you guys and bragging about you, I think, I don't know, or, you know, uh, proselytizing. Prost- and then people saw me praying, and these bodies riding, riding up. And then once, like, the stuff with the shut-in city, I, those people had nothing to do. But once they got healthy with all the eating we've been doing, and then uh, people with venereal diseases were isolated. They were just having sex with each other, so no more spread of that. So some of them, unfortunately, passed on to you gods, but the rest of them. So then they, people just started getting into it, like— um like a holiday and they were wandering in the city and grabbing people or just doing weird. It was hilarious, guys. I don't have all day, you know, but it was like something out of a movie that I might put in a tree for Barky that he never returns. Uh, like Goonies was in Barky's tree, Barky. Um, I know you love that movie and you just keep watching over. But anyway, God, I'm like, yeah. uh, so, at some point, the people in the village, they called the aldermen, and then they would see me, and they're like, well, what if 
like the old people were creeping them out and some people like they'd move into people's houses and I don't know what it was with this town, but they actually bought that these people were dead or that some of them just didn't like their parents. I think there was a lot of elder, um, whatever you call it when you're, you're fed up with somebody and then you, whatever, but, uh, you know, their mom moved back in with them and they told the alderman to either, you know, it was either him like, and they were like, just, you know, and he calls me and he's like, okay, what can you do to get rid of all these old people? And I said, you got to get out of here, bro. And he said, no, I'll just kill them all. And I said, who's going to kill them? Uh, you know, we, we stole all your swords and all the weapon supplies. And we had, you know, we, we threw them in the river. And he said, who's we? And I said, the coven of witches I run. I'm, I'm a warlock. And uh, I'm about to uh, put a hex, uh, hex on you with a lightning bolt. And there's going to be a lightning bolt on your forehead. You know, that's, oh, no, wait, that's that symbolizes power. You know, I, I don't know, man. I'm going to mess you up. And he's a, he, this guy, he was stubborn. And he was like, I'm going to. And I said, fine. Uh, and then I went to the people. I said, you get rid of this alderman. I'll get rid of these old people. And uh, and, the, and I said, you know, and, and then so the guy was gone. I don't want to tell you what happened to him because it was, whew. And I think of people finally, like, once he was gone, uh, honestly, I'm pretty sure he was, like, some sort of magician or something. Because the people in the town, they got a little bit more, less dense. They're pretty quick. They figured out. And I said, um, oh, you want to get rid of these people? Treat them with some respect like you would the goddess, the crone. And crone, I made up all these stories and people would gather around. I don't remember the stories, but they are good. I was like, you know, about your wisdom and all that, and then I made up, like, you know, like the stories, you guys, I don't know if you listen, Barky again, I put all that stuff on the old iPod up there, that rained, so if it doesn't work, I get it, I just figured you're a god, you might be able to dry it out, but I had all my podcasts on there, so I told all these stories about you guys, and they were great, um, about, I can't remember them, though, because that's a problem sometimes. I didn't record those because it was like spoken word around a fire or around a well. But these people, they're lapping it up. They're like, they're missing something. And I said, you could start, yeah, be kind. That's how you get rid of uh, this stuff. So everybody starts being kind. And, uh, you know, and then they're like, well, when's the payout? When, you know, I helped this lady, you know, we reopened the, uh, those things and then, uh, they're like, how are we going to pay for them? Like, tax the rich. And then that's trouble started. And they called in these big um, septin types. And that's, uh, you know, we, we I don't want to get into the Let me see if I can put a lid on this stuff. And then, um, you know, get back to you guys next week about the whole thing. But I think that guy's gone. Uh, Bolton. Bolton Clegane was his fake name. Um, on a side note, Smith, I don't know if you have operations up there, but you can kick it into high gear because we are probably going to need some weapons down here just in case because they sent – I didn't realize that in this – that uh, the religions had soldiers, some of the big shots do. So uh, that was with the battling. But everyone – a lot of people are on my side. They like the uh, – you know, I was singing songs about you guys. I got minstrels. It's fun. Uh, well, it was until the killing started.
Uh, but, uh, you know, gods, don't worry. Uh, more souls to go around or something. You know how it is. And, uh, I mean, a good thing is Crone, Miller, Smith, Barkey, Jester. I don't know. If, I mean, maybe this isn't good, but I, mean, I don't know what you guys want. But these people are sac willing to sacrifice. Well, they're not, they don't really know you. They know my version of you, which is kind of not probably accurate because I haven't met you guys. I wasn't raised on you guys. I've just kind of grown to be grown and developed an affinity for out of all the gods. And plus, I came up, you know, Miller, you were like a B love, you know, you were in the minor leagues. I brought you up. Barky, I brought you in from the, you know, that other team. They, you know, brought you out of retirement or whatever they want to call it. Like, uh, you know, brought you into the fold. Jester, I just kind of knew your soul was, uh, uh, cracked me up. I thought, you know, I want to be your boy. I want to hang. As long as you stay away from the maiden. So that's it, Gads. Um, I'll be um, trying to put a cap on this or hiding under my covers uh, up to one or the other uh, or both. So uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm your humble. Uh, well, there's a humble stuff might be. That makes be the other problem because they kind of christened me some. Well, we'll talk about it next week, Gads. Okay. Thank you so much for this opportunity, this lessons of life lessons and and the um, – the brothel inspections were good while they lasted, so that was, I got that to, I don't have any more, but uh, if you give me, you know, if you find a way to, uh, you know, get me back into any of them, that'd be great, but otherwise I'll be here. Thank you, gods, and good night, all right, and rest well, especially you, crone, sweet, sweet crone, thank you, especially you, good night, thank you.